Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, these are God's words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. How we rejoice to know from that word that he adds his blessing to the preaching of it. Please be seated. I hope that having learned and begun applying, whether for the first time or uh, in an ongoing way by uh, the help of the Sabbath school class to meditate upon that which we read in our private worship and read and hear in our family worship, and especially what we read and sit under hearing preached in the public worship, that you went home from verse 9 last week and said, I want to be a peacemaker. I want to enjoy the peace that I have with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to be a son not of the fallen Adam, but an offspring of the new Adam, of the new creation, even in the midst of the old creation, taking dominion, bringing order and beauty and showing the image of God who has recreated me, renewing me into his image in Christ. I want to be a bringer of shalom wherever I go. I want to be a peacemaker in my home who lives according to the character and conduct of the Lord Jesus, building my family, the, the wife or the husband, the parents or the children that he has assigned to me, being used by him to build them up into Christ, bringing them into the full enjoyment of their reconciliation with God, I want to be a peacemaker in my community, my neighborhood, Uh, being one who is always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within me, giving myself to all that God has appointed me in the knowledge and hope that as he saves from among the community and among the nation and among the world, whatever part he has assigned to me, whatever season of life I'm in, Whatever 
vocation, daily calling and work I have. Uh, That has been assigned to me as he brings others to himself. I want to be a, a peacemaker. Praise God. Praise God, even if you didn't necessarily go home and remember and feel and think all those things. But if God, the Holy Spirit, having just reminded you in three minutes of a sermon that took, uh, I don't remember how long it was, has stirred those things back up in your heart and mind again. But then we come from blessed are the peacemakers to blessed are those who are persecuted. It's almost like one of those memes that you may have seen. And, you know, if you're not... Uh, on the internet much and you aren't familiar with what memes are, thank your God and bear with the illustration. But, you know, verse 9, how it started, and verse 10, how it's going. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, praise God. Blessed are you, or sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted, verse 10. Because peacemakers are not always responded to with peace. This is very important in Romans chapter 12 when he says, as far as it depends on you. And he doesn't mean that anything actually depends on you. As far as by God's grace he assigned to you in your part where he has put you, live at peace with everyone. But even as God graciously works in you, a believer, to be a peacemaker. Those with whom you are making peace may not wish for that peace. Many consider peace with God to be bound and chained, enslaved to having to do what God says and having to live under his Christ as a subject. Ooh, horrible word, subject in his kingdom. And so the nations rage, kings and peoples plot in vain and their blindness, and their foolishness, wanting instead to be enslaved to their own whims and their own wishes, subjects of their own sin, the very thing out of which Christ delivers those whom he saves, those whom he brings into that wonderful subjection to him. But those who rage against him will also then rage against his people. The more like him they become So there is a sense in which verses 10 through 16 then go on to address what if peacemaking fails? What if that future blessedness, they shall be called sons of God, is in many parts of your present experience not a present blessedness? They don't say, oh, you're a child of God. You're a copy of Jesus. That's so delightful to us. They may say, you're such a goody-goody, intolerant, narrow, fanatical, Puritan, precisionist, or even as they said in Antioch, Christians. The word Christian only appears twice in the Bible. And in both places, uh, 
it implies that it was used at first pejoratively. So what happened? What about when peacemaking fails and we're not enjoying presently part of that uh, future they shall be called sons of God that we heard so much about last week? And the answer is to rejoice and to shine. To rejoice and to shine. And we'll get that especially in the second and third headings of our sermon today. Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. And let your light shine unto the glory of your Father who is in heaven. And in each portion then of this, uh, this passage that holds together from verse 10 and unto verse 16, there is one of these in heaven uh, sayings, which is therefore how we are going to take our cue from the text and organize the way we hear, the way we preach and hear preached uh, this passage in the Lord's worship today. Uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven there at the end of verse 10. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see great is your reward in heaven. And then in verses 13 through 16, we see the conclusion that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So first then, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or to reorder the words so that we can have it in uh, a little bit closer to the form of blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And really then in, in verse 10, if we focus on that aspect of what the Lord Jesus produces in those whom he gives that baptism that is greater than John's, that pouring out of his spirit that gives light to the mind and life to the heart so that we believe in him and are joined to him and are transformed. And we put the emphasis on the difference that he makes. Blessed are the righteous. Blessed are those who are righteous in their character and conduct. Because that is that for which they are being persecuted, isn't it? In verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness's sake. Blessed are those whom the Lord, who is our only and all of our righteousness before God, and in whom also then the character, the righteous character of the Lord Jesus is being worked into us, and righteous conduct is being then worked out of us. We are working out our own salvation because it is him, it is he who works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And yet as that gets worked out, what is the response in verse 10? The response is being persecuted on account of it. Now what's interesting here is the one in verse 10 has this righteous character and righteous conduct, not perfectly so, of course, in this life, but genuinely so and increasingly so because the Lord Jesus does make a real difference 
and those whom he unites to himself and brings to faith in himself. So, so in verse 10, we, are, we have righteous character and righteous conduct, but the blessing is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where have we heard that blessing before, children? Uh, I know six weeks' time is a long time in the life of a child. Um, so have your, if you have your Bible open, you can go back in time six weeks by going up a dozen or so lines. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how is it that the, that the same group is in verse 3 and in verse 10? Because verse 3 is those who are spiritually bankrupt. Remember all the way back when we've discovered that we have, we have nothing good in us. We're spiritually bankrupt, but we've found all of the riches of all of the goodness and righteousness of God himself in Jesus Christ alone. Well, how how are the spiritually bankrupt ones in verse 3 also the ones now who are righteous in character and conduct and the world can even see that character and that conduct and is responding to it with persecution? Well, we kind of already answered the question, didn't we? Where was all of the righteousness and all of the goodness that we discovered if we are the bankrupt ones from verse 3? It's in Jesus Christ. And so this righteous character and this righteous conduct is coming from union with him. We can see that even more if we cheat on our headings a little bit. They won't mind. Headings don't establish morality. If we cheat on our headings a little bit and see that righteousness' sake in verse 10 is my, Jesus' sake in verse 11. And so it's not even so much an account of your character and your conduct are different to theirs and that is, uh, that is what is chafing them, although that does happen, doesn't it? I mean, you can just be godly around someone who is ungodly and think about things like um, the way a husband and wife talk to one another or the way we parent our children and respond to them and then someone who is ungodly and the husband and wife are relating very differently uh, uh, or the way you are at work uh, and doing things with diligence and zeal and integrity. And you, you don't complain about what you have to do today. You don't gossip about, uh, about the boss and you don't indulge in, uh, in lustful innuendo and that kind of joking. And you're just being a Christian and everybody else says, you're so judgmental. You didn't open your mouth about their marriage or their parenting or the way they act at work. You can get persecuted just for that. But the great reason for the persecution is something that they may not even recognize in their own heart. They are resistant and rebelling against Jesus Christ himself, against God and his anointed. And it's because, not so much even because the way you think and feel and speak and act is righteous, but because it's Christ and because it's from him. That's what they're rebelling against. That's what they hate. The for righteousness' sake is not because you got to be such uh, a impressive Pharisee 
in verse 10. We're about to deal with that in the next section of chapter 5, aren't we? The difference between the righteousness of a Pharisee and the righteousness that is worked out in a believer from Jesus Christ. It's not because you became so pharisaical. It's because you've been united to Christ and Christ is being formed in you to use the, the spirit-inspired language uh, of, of the apostle. And so this is, uh, this is a righteousness that comes from union with Christ, and therefore it is defined by God and his law. Verse 17 and following, the Lord helping us, we'll finish this week and jump into verse 17 next week. Uh, and Jesus, as he goes on to describe the character and the conduct of the Christ-united believer who is a citizen of the kingdom, is going to say, and actually, you already have a law which tells you what that looks like. I'm not changing anything. I'm giving you more understanding. I'm giving you the knowledge of and uh, how it happens in a redeemed believer. But Jesus isn't, he's not redefining what morality is. God's law has always defined morality because God's law has always been the applications in our lives of the implications of being made in his image, of the implications of God's own character, which is one of the reasons why his law is so holy to us. Because the law of God is an expression not first of what he wants us to be like, but of what he is like and how he expects our lives to respond to that. And so if our righteousness, if the righteousness in verse 10 is that which comes from union with Christ, it's defined by God and his law, and it's quite literally fleshed out by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus now is God and man. He's God in the flesh. Or to put it another way, the, the righteousness in verse 10 is embodied by Jesus Christ. And so we mustn't read this as a blessed are those who are persecuted for being so obnoxious about the handful of parts of God's law that they think they're so much better at than everybody else that they're constantly focusing only on those things and making sure everybody knows about how much better they are and worse the other person is. Conduct yourself like that. And it's not for righteousness' sake, and it's not for Jesus' sake. You're just persecuted because you're obnoxious. But if you are righteous in the way defined by God's law, you will be persecuted for Jesus' sake. Especially the more those who, uh, among whom God has placed you depart from the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, depart from his law. Many believers today are much more persecuted than they were 20 years ago. And not because they have changed in their principles and their morality and their dependence upon Christ and their union with Christ, but simply because God's law is so much more openly hated by those who increasingly call evil good 
and therefore good they call evil. But praise God, this is in uh, together with uh, the beatitude in verse 3. This is a present blessedness, isn't it? You remember we pointed that out in, in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, yes, the present tense of the to be verb there is there. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you had all these future blessednesses, these future benefits and blessings in verses 4 through 9. They shall, they shall, they shall, they shall, etc. But now we're back to for theirs is the kingdom. In other words, the particular response that we find as we're following Christ and seeking to walk with him uh, and you get reviled or uh, denounced, spoken of as if your name is a curse word, either to your face or about you. Uh, and you get persecuted, uh, actively harassed, and you're slandered, they speak uh, evil of you, call you evil, either falsely because they're calling good evil or even falsely because the facts don't actually matter to them. They just hate you. And as this is happening to you and you, and you are unable to explain it, uh, and without the Bible you'd say, why in the world would this be how they respond to me? But God comes to you and he says, don't you see, you're not a subject of their kingdom. You're not a citizen. You're not their compatriot. You, your homeland is different now. It's kind of like, you know, a book or film or TV trope. Well, maybe not anymore. They've blurred the line so much. But when I was growing up, if, if there was a Russian in anything, in literature or anything, you knew he was the bad guy. Because it was still the Cold War. Well, the Cold War of what Scripture calls the God of this world, the Cold War of the kingdoms of this world, which is in... The book of Revelation, the word kingdom there is actually singular. The kingdom of this world is not so cold in its war against the kingdom of Christ. And so when they respond to you this way, you are already blessed. Because it's a symptom of, it's an evidence of belonging to another kingdom. Praise God, I didn't know that... I was, didn't have this level of assurance that I, as a member of the heavenly, eternal, invisible kingdom, which is not any less real for its invisibility, but now I've been responded to this way, and, and God the Holy Spirit tells me, tells you in Matthew 5 and verse 10, that one of the ways that he blesses to you the response that you get from others is he uses that response to affirm for you that you have the kingdom already now, present tense. 
It's similar to a, a child of God who lacks assurance and then the Lord comes and disciplines him for his sin and he remembers Hebrews 12 and yes, he grieves over his sin and the consequences in how he's been able or unable to relate with his father and the consequences in what his sin has produced in his own life and in others' lives. But at least this is a mercy and a happiness for him as the Lord disciplines him. He says, I am a true child. Many of you know, I won't tell you all about him and so forth. We'd do that another time. But I've, I have a friend in the ministry who was converted by realizing that he had never been disciplined by God for any of his sin. And he thought, I am an illegitimate son. And he cried out to God to save him. And he cried out, and uh, the next time he was consciously aware of a sin that he had committed, he was so afflicted in his soul and so many horrible things happened to him that he was just walking on air with gladness that God had saved him and affirmed to him that he was a true son and not illegitimate. Well, there's a similarity, isn't there? If he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you may be threatened of their making you miserable, but it's actually a reminder from God that you are in a blessed condition. Well, then in the second place, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Now in verse 11 to 12, great is your reward in heaven. Did you notice the difference in the pronouns? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's been third person like that all the way from verse 3, hasn't it? Describing a blessing that belongs to a particular set of people. And when, when we want to make application to ourselves, we see that, yes, uh, the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, has uh, begun to produce in me the, the particular condition uh, of blessing in, in verses 3 through 9, so that I may lay hold of the particular blessedness that belongs to those who are in that condition. But we have in verses 11 to 12, not theirs or there, but you, 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 your. Those of you who have memorized your verse for this week, memorized verse 11. And perhaps when you're memorizing, I know this one wasn't particularly challenging if you're under 40. If you're over 40, memorizing everything is challenging. But perhaps as you memorized it and you had those kind of mileposts as you were building that recall up, perhaps you noticed those you use the different instances of the word you. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for, and this is wonderful, my Jesus here speaking, sake. You see, he's progressed from exposition in verses 3 through 10 to application in verses 11 and 12. He's telling them about something in verses 3 through 10, and they were to be 
uh, understanding it in their own context. But now he very directly uh, addresses them about themselves in verses 11 to 12. In other words, he's switched now from instruction to benediction. And we probably will never use, uh, not even uh, today, uh, verses, uh, verse 11, for instance, as a benediction at the end of the service. Blessed are you because they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for the Lord Jesus' sake. But it is a benediction here. It is very personal here. Jesus um, is communicating to them that this is something that they personally are going to experience. Now, there are things that they are responding to because they have Jesus. And those who do not have Jesus, this is the they who revile and persecute you. He divides the whole world into two groups. And Jesus always does this, doesn't he? The whole world is divided into two groups. Those who are in and with and for the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are outside of, from, and against the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who said, blessed are the peacemakers, also said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Because if there's a difference, even between husband and wife, and between brother and sister and parents and children, if, there, if there's a difference on the point of Jesus Christ, then there is this they and there is this you. And this blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What is it that the believer has in Christ in the for my sake that worldlings and especially false church members and that's the primary application here because you remember the group that are with Christ on the mountain are the ones who in whom the Lord Jesus has done such a gracious work that they leave that great multitude at the bottom of the mountain, and who were the multitude at the bottom of the mountain? It wasn't the world generally. It wasn't the, the ones who didn't care anything about using the name of Jesus or gathering in the name of Jesus or the fame of the name of Jesus or the work of the name of Jesus. No, the multitude at the bottom of the mountain, the they, that, that the ones to whom Jesus first preached this could visually see and could see them. You remember, the, the ones who came up the mountain did so because they saw that the Lord Jesus had sat down, that he had taken the posture that they were accustomed to in the synagogues that said he was about to preach. And so there were those who, who saw that Jesus was about to preach. And everything else he had done had been an indication to them of who Jesus is. So that they had 
the, 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 sort, the same sort of interaction you remember when Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to depart? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so those who are up there on the mountain with him, who came to him when he sat down to preach, have come because the one who is their life is opening his mouth to preach. But the ones who are at the bottom are actually... The, the analogy is with church members. Church members who, who don't think of, there's a sermon today, and there might be two. It might not even be the Lord's Day. But Jesus is going to open his mouth, and I'm going to go hear him preach. And the other ones who are like, well, we heard a sermon at synagogue. And this multitude of people who are excited about the name of Jesus and the miraculous works of Jesus. Yeah, we're good church members too. But there's this there and you here. And one of the things that those who respond, who, who are like Jesus in the first temptation where he's living by every word that proceeds from his father's mouth, and there's this delight in his father's goodness to him that won't even permit the idea that the reason he's hungry is because there's some defect in his being the son of God or defect in God's love to him. One thing that those who have Christ have is confidence before God. This will drive people crazy. It'll especially drive them crazy in Reformed churches. A brother several weeks ago mentioned in the Sabbath school that he had had an experience uh, in a Reformed church where it seemed like uh, every get-together of believers was all about how miserable we still are and how horrible we still are. And, uh, and, yeah, and that was just that was uniquely reformed to them because it was really putting the T in tulip. But they just subtracted the U-L-I-N-P. All the stuff that's actually about the Lord himself. His electing, his atoning, his calling by grace, his preserving us. But those who have Christ have a confidence before God that is offensive. When others don't, they have liberty and zeal and freedom of life. They've been set free from the domination of sin and the domination of anxiety and the domination of guilt. They have Christ. False church members lack actual obedience to God being worked out in the life. A love of God that is not about how I feel about him and the things that make me feel that way, but a love of God that is about whom he has made me to be to himself and him to be to me, and how he says that that's expressed both from him, especially in the cross most of all, but in everything the fellowship of his spirit and in his word and in the means of grace and in his church, but even in the, the more general providences of the world. 
Where suddenly the sun rises at the command of the one who has united you to himself for salvation. And also sets at that command. And the storm comes in and the waves are as big as mountains like in the, uh, in the psalm that called us to worship. But Jesus commanded them to be that big. And when Jesus commands, they'll be calm again. But it's Jesus who commands it. And we love him. And we love our neighbor, not the, according to our neighbor's definition. That's how they want to be loved. Your neighbor does not want to be loved according to what Jesus says love is. Your neighbor wants to be loved according to that which pleases them and praises them. And that will, that will provoke persecution. And so you can expect that many, many who see the way that you love God, many whom you yourself are loving, will not commend you for it, but denounce you for it. Blessed are you when they revile you. They will not treat you kindly back or even leave you alone but actively harass you and hinder you and attack you, persecute you. They will not speak of you truthfully, but slander you as evil with no regard to actual facts. Well, he begins with benediction in verse 11, and he moves on to commandment in verse 12. What are you to do? You are to take the doctrine in verse 10. There is the kingdom in heaven and the reality that has produced the righteousness in you for which you are being persecuted. Union with Christ for my sake. End of verse 11. You take that doctrine, you take that reality and you respond to it as you are commanded to respond. Are you righteous in the way that you respond to sexual perversion? which is approved and increasingly demanded to be celebrated in our culture? Are you righteous in the way that you respond to the Lord and his day and his commands for worship, which will get you persecuted even by the so-called evangelical church? Are you righteous in all of those other things? Be righteous in this. Obey the command to rejoice. Obey the command to be exceedingly glad. And you say, well, it is hard. It is hard to rejoice and to be exceedingly glad when I am attacked this way. Well, take your eyes off of where and who, earth and they, and direct your eyes, direct your attention to where and who, heaven and him who is your reward. This is the key to obeying this command to rejoice and not just be glad as as if that wasn't already counterintuitive enough to the flesh. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why and how? Because great is your reward in heaven. Don't you see whom you have, the ever-blessed God, who now, in the coming of Christ, has most and fully uh, 
declared most and most clearly and fully declared himself Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that you have been brought into a fellowship that begins in God himself. And he is your portion. He is your exceedingly great reward. Like he told to Abram, when Abram was rejecting the gifts of Sodom and its associated uh, cities, and now he had offended Kedorlaomer and his alliance, and he's offended Sodom and their alliance, and he has no one on earth. Everybody hates him, and God appears to him. And God declares to him that he is his shield, and he is his exceedingly great reward. And the Lord Jesus now on this mountain with these people and to this congregation today by his Spirit says, great is your reward in heaven. You have God. You have God the Father as your Father. You have God the Son as your salvation. You have union with him that is forever and ever. Your earthly marriages, if you have one, will end. But your bond to Christ is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and a member of his beloved bride is forever and ever. You have God the Holy Spirit who doesn't just come alongside you so that you, you may have fellowship with him, but he dwells in you. He dwells in you so, to, to such an extent that Jesus would say that by the, his fellowship with us and in us, we are not left as orphans, but the Father and the Son also by the ministry of the Spirit come and make their home with us. You have God. Now, this isn't necessarily going to be instantaneous for you. You may have to meditate a little bit upon what it means to have a great reward in heaven now until you start thinking about him who is the heavenliness of heaven. And you come like Asaph and you say, I was a beast towards you. I was a beast towards you, but... Now I can see. I am continually with you. You take me by the hand. You guide me by the count, your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing else on earth I desire beside you. That is your great reward in heaven, dear Christian. And that is the means by which you come from Anxiety and woundedness and bitterness and worry and all of the things that you can suffer under being reviled or persecuted or slandered and come instead to obey this wonderful command. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it glorious to have a God and a king who gives such commands? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. It's a very happy command if you can carry it out. But we have such a God and such a king who gives not just this wonderful command, but gives himself to enable you to obey the command. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. This is the key to understanding the thing with the prophets. It's not... Chin up, you get to be slaughtered like the prophets did. 
No. It's don't you remember how great God was in the sight, experience, life of those prophets. That they could not be intimidated or rejected or attacked into changing their message because they had God. God spoke to them. God had laid claim on their life. God had called them to this. If they have God, so what if the entire nation was against them? They had God. And yes, they got slaughtered. And they still have God. More than they ever did before. And so we'll take verses 13 through 16 next week. Although, um, really verses 13 through 16 are an application. Uh, and we'll probably take the time uh, as you meditate upon verses 10 through 12, as you meditate upon the preaching that you've heard and how the Spirit has brought his word home to you in this time. I want you to think about how easy it is for us when for the sake of being united to Christ and the sake of living the way that those who are united to him live, we are persecuted. How easily we can shrink from, shrink back from the difference that has provoked that persecution or the circumstances in which that persecution has come to us. And Lord, helping us and sparing us to one another, um, we'll hear how to respond to that initial reflex of the flesh to shrink from those things. And so today, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, not only for the perfect wisdom of your word, and these truths that describe for us a reality that we ought to see. We will ask you for faith to live by what your word says and not by what is apparent to our natural mind. But we thank you that it's not just true, but it's yours. That it proceeds from your mouth. That indeed, with Christ himself as your word to us, who preaches your words to us, that we receive this personally from you, personally from and in him. Help us then by your spirit, we pray, to lay hold not just of these ideas from the heart, but grant to us by your spirit to lay hold of you from our hearts, that we would rejoice to have your kingdom already and that we would rejoice and be exceedingly glad to have you yourself already in the Lord Jesus by your spirit, which we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.